Okay, so biblical history provided the fundamental chronological framework within which all medieval Irish history writing was conceived. The myths of creation and the flood, the account of the Jewish exodus and the Babylonian captivity, were believed to be literally true and gave all of world history its order and shape. That being said, the Bible per se is not a major thematic concern of the Book of Ballymote as a whole. Rather, the Bible provides roots, origins, legitimacy and a chronological framework for those things which are central themes of the manuscript, namely ideas of kingship, invasion, history, ancestry, language and place. Biblical history provides the foundations upon which other edifices are built. But the biblical material cannot be excavated and examined in isolation from non-biblical material since it is expertly interwoven and juxtaposed uh, with other aspects of Assyrian, Persian, Greek and Roman history and prehistory, along with medieval conceptions of Irish and British history and prehistory, forming a body of material which has generally been called synthetic world history, that is the synthesizing of a vast range of historical sources underpinned by uh, a biblical scheme. And it's just worth mentioning uh, or emphasizing that a Christian worldview runs through every text contained in the Book of Ballymote, even those which do not discuss overtly Christian subjects. Uh, the late Middle Irish treatise Cord Anman, for example, which deals with the meanings of names, doesn't advert to its roots in early Christian learning, although we can detect them both in its etymologizing technique, which derives most notably from Isidore of Seville, and in instances where biblical thought has a clear influence on the meaning given for a particular name. So thus, for example, the name Fezmidrechtida is said to derive from Rechtid, judge, because, we are told, he used to follow the judgments of the law, for he practiced talio, like for like, that is, similis vindicta, equal retribution, i.e. an eye for an eye, and a foot for a foot, and a hand for a hand, and so on. Because of the extent then to which the judgments of the law used to be followed, he was called Fezlamith Rechtida. So the influence of Exodus and Leviticus there is, is clear in the eye for, the eye for an eye and so on. Um, although if one were to read Cord Anman as a whole, its debt to Christian thought might not be immediately obvious. Indeed, the Book of Ballymote offers much temptation to see evidence in its texts for Irish pre-Christian traditions, a temptation to which many have succumbed in the past, uh, but which is, to my mind, misguided. Insofar as the biblical and indeed world history contained within these texts has been an object of study by scholars of medieval Ireland, it has largely been in the way that they relate to Ireland's own origin myths and in the way that mythical ancestor figures were created in order to connect Ireland to biblical history and genealogy, that is to write Ireland into Old Testament history. The biblical and other world history contained in the manuscript has not generally been studied on its own terms in any detail. But the biblical, mythical and historical figures mentioned in the Ballymote texts serve functions other than simply as a mainframe into which Ireland could plug itself. Some biblical and historical figures are given more extensive coverage than others. Um, some aspects of biblical history are emphasized more than others. So thinking about the biblical and associated material more closely can help us to elucidate the wider concerns of the Ballymote compilers and to identify other functions for these biblical characters. Rather than simply providing chronological anchoring, 
They might also provide instances of exemplary behaviour, whether positive or negative, or possess a political or moral significance. However, understanding the precise nature and function of the biblical material in the Book of Ballymoat is hampered by the general lack of scholarship on the material, even on the fundamental level of access to printed editions and translations of key texts. For example, Miles Dillon's edition and translation of Shkel Saltroch Naran, a prose reworking and adaptation of biblical narrative, um, his edition is from the version in the Book of Ivania, uh, which has significant differences in extent, in wording, in style, and in emphasis from the version of the text preserved in the Book of Ballymote. That version has not been edited yet. Um, similarly, when Davio Croinin and Hildegard Tristram separately produced editions of the Irish Sexetates Mundi, neither of them made use of the version in the Book of Ballymote for their respective editions. Uh, Tristram offered a single witness edition based on the version in Rawlinson B502, and O'Croinin considered the Book of Ballymote as representing a late recension uh, of the text, and he was seeking to, to edit the earliest version uh, as he saw it, and so based his edition primarily also on the Rawlinson manuscript. And even in cases where relevant texts in the Book of Ballymote have been edited and translated, such as the poem on Ninus, son of Belus, or the synchronistic texts, Prima Etus Mundi and Adam Primus Partafuit, all of which were edited and translated by Bartholomew McCarthy in 1892, these editions and translations are highly unsatisfactory. They're inaccurate, frequently misleading, uh, and in some places just gibberish, really. Um, so therefore, even determining exactly what is there in the manuscript would require considerable labor in textual editing and translating which I have not undertaken. Uh, I have not transcribed and translated all of the Book of the Ballymote version of the Irish Sexetates Mundi, for example, or all of the Ballymote version of Scale Soltroch Naran. Um, so it's certainly possible that if such substantial tasks are undertaken, as one hopes they would be, that my conclusions might require revision. Uh, but I hope that what I've done is read enough to be a representative sample of the way that biblical material is treated across the manuscript as a whole and to draw attention to instances where the versions of texts found in the book of Ballymote are doing something different to other manuscript versions of the same text. And these differences then might give us clues as to, to the particular purpose or function of the texts in their manuscript context and indeed allow us to argue tentatively for certain thematic interests which appear to govern the compilation and arrangement of the manuscript as a whole. So first, then, a brief introduction to this overarching chronological scheme into which the testimony of the Balamote texts uh, fits. Under number three on your handout, uh, I've provided you with text and translation of a short Latin text found on folio 5 verso, column B, of the Book of Balamote. Now, this text was edited without a translation by Hildegard Tristram as two separate texts, although I think it should be read as a single text, one piece, and that's how I've presented it there on the handout. And I'll just read my translation. So from Adam until the flood, 1,656 years. From the flood to Abraham, 942 years. From Abraham to Moses, 600 years. From Moses to Solomon and the first building of the temple, 488 years. From Solomon to the transmigration to Babylon, which was done under Darius, king of the Persians, 512 years are reckoned. Then from King Darius to the preaching of our Lord Jesus Christ and to the tenth year of the rule of the Emperor Tiberius, 548 years are completed. Thus, at the same time, there are from Adam to the preaching of Christ and the tenth year of the Roman Emperor Tiberius, 5,228 years. Since the Passion of Christ, 900 years have passed. 
Moreover, the first age of the world was from Adam to Noah, the second from Noah to Abraham, the third from Abraham to David, the fourth from David to Daniel, the fifth age until John the Baptist, the sixth from John until the judgment, when our Lord will come to judge the living and the dead in the world through fire. Philip. This text, Abadam Usque Ad Diluvium, gives two different iterations of a biblical chronological scheme. The first extends from Adam to the preaching of Christ and ends by giving, bringing the scheme to the present day of the author, since the Passion of Christ 900 years have passed, thus suggesting a date of composition of the text in the early 10th century. And the second gives the traditional six ages of the world scheme, ending with the coming of Christ in judgment, that is, the end of the current sixth age. Significantly, there is no eschatological orientation here, no idea about the future. Um, the same is true of the Irish Sexetates Mundi uh, in the Book of Ballymote. As Moira Herbert has noted in the Ballymote version of the Sexetates Mundi, there is no mention of a seventh or eighth age, no sense of eschatological expectation. In the Rawlinson B502 version of the Irish Sexetates Mundi, there is material on future ages, the seventh age between death and judgment, uh, the eighth age, the time beyond time, the eternity of heaven and, and hell. So this lack of eschatological focus in the Ballymote version of the Irish Sexetates Mundi and the Latin text Abadum Usqueat Diluvium is also seen in the 12th century vernacular poem She Bliana Cogeth Malay, uh, which follows immediately after Abadum Usqueat Diluvium in the Book of Ballymote. And my apologies, this is not on the handout, but I'll just read my English translation, which differs from Tristram's edition and German translation in a, in a few readings. So 56 years together on 600 on a 1,000 from the creation of Adam without blemish until the flood drowned the earth. 92 years, it is no lie, on 200 for keeping. It is true, as I reckon to say, from the flood until Abraham. 42 fair years and 900 years from the birth of Abraham without anger until David was made king. 73 full years on 300 completely from when David of the Rhymes was inaugurated until Jerusalem was destroyed. 81 complete years on 300, it is not the same length, from the end of the captivity onwards till Christ was born as our Lord. 3,000 years, it is no lie, 52 years, 900 until he was born, he is a full lamb from when the world of noble aspect was created. 100 years and a great thousand since the truly perfect king was born until this year, I have it, 20 years, 6 years. And this last stanza then dates this poem to the year 1126, some 200 years later than the Latin text which precedes it in the manuscript, and yet the relationship between the two texts in terms of theme and content is clear. We can therefore propose one observation regarding the biblical material in the book of Ballymote, namely that it is not eschatological uh, in orientation, it's not particularly concerned with salvation um, or the future fate of individuals. It has a fundamentally historical orientation, that is, it's concerned with the time from creation until the present age, and the Bible provides the chronological framework for the exploration of wider historical themes. And another thing which we can observe that the Book of Ballymote is seemingly not interested in is biblical exegesis, that is, the explanation of the various layers of meaning which biblical narrative was understood to possess. Now, I'm not suggesting that the biblical material in the book of Ballymote should only be understood in a literal or historical, on a literal historical level. Far from it. Indeed, I think particular themes and individuals are given extensive coverage in various texts in the manuscript precisely because of their symbolic or typological significance. 
but rather what I would argue is that the texts in the Book of Ballymote are not concerned with explicitly stating or elucidating the symbolic or typological function of particular biblical episodes. So thus the example on number four on your handout, um, the, the meal between, uh, eaten between Isaac and Jacob, um, so first I've given you the version uh, in the book of Ivania as edited by Miles Dillon. Then Isaac ate the supper and raising up his hand he bestowed his blessing upon Jacob and said that tibi deus de rori coili et de pinguendene terai abundantium vini et olei. May God give thee of the dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth abundance of wine and oil. The lordship of every good thing in both heaven and earth an abundance of perfect seed were foretold for him then according to the literal meaning and the figurative meaning. Now if we compare that to the same episode uh, in the Book of Ballymote version, we can see that it's very sparing in, in its uh, treatment of the same scene. All it says is, Isaac consumed the meal then and lifted up his pure white hands and gave his blessing to Jacob. Thus the episode itself, a significant one in biblical history, is included in the Ballymote version of Shkel Soltroth Moran, but there is none of the exegetical explanation of the significance of the episode which we find in the Evania version. Similarly, the Ballymote version of the Irish Sexetates Mundi does not contain the exegetical material regarding the symbolic interpretation of the Ark, which is found in Rawlinson B502 version of that text. Neither does the Ballymote version contain the passage on the mystical interpretation of the psalm known as the Beati, which again is found uh, in other versions of the text in the Rawlinson B502 version. Now there has been some significant scholarly debate about whether the Rawlinson B502 version of the Irish Sexetates Mundi represents the earliest or original version of that 11th century text. On the whole, it seems more likely that the exegetical material has been added to the Rawlinson B502 version rather than comprising part of the original text. For our purposes, that argument is less significant than the simple fact that such exegetical material is not there in the Ballymote version of the text, just as the Ballymote account of the history of the Hebrews from Shkale Soltroch Naran doesn't offer an exegetical interpretation of Jacob and Isaac's meal. The interests of the manuscript are thus neither eschatological nor explicitly exegetical. I would argue with those, including Padre Nail and others, who have identified a largely historiographical motivation underlying the Irish Sexetates Mundi, and would argue that it is a mainly historiographical project which determines, determined the selection and arrangement of other biblical materials in the Book of Ballymote. However, the selection of material for inclusion, and indeed the exclusion, potentially, of other sources, is inherently meaningful. And just because one might well argue that the Irish Sexetates Mundi, for example, is a historical rather than a devotional text, does not mean that political, moral, or theological readings of the text as they are preserved in the manuscript aren't also valid. So I would like to look at the presentation of two very different kings in the biblical and parabiblical material in the Book of Ballymote. World kingship, empire, overlordship is a persistent theme in many of the Ballymote texts. And it's possible that the depiction of earlier biblical kings lend legitimacy to or have typological significance for other later kings and kingships portrayed within other texts in the manuscript. So I'd like to note the way that kings who ruled over Babylon are of particular interest in a number of Ballymote texts. 
For example, the text beginning Prima Etis Mundi, edited, edited by McCarthy under the catchy title Synchronism A, uh, states, and this correspond, This is my edition, and sorry, it's not on the handout again. This is my edition and translation. It corresponds with section C in McCarthy's edition. He's, it says, the Assyrians had 35 kings. 1,240 years was their rule. From the end of the sovereignty of the Assyrians until the first Olympic Games by the Greeks, 43 years. From the first Olympiad to the captivity of the ten tribes, 156 years. From the captivity of the ten tribes until the burning of the temple, 36 years. 442 years the temple was after being built until it was burnt. From the burning of the temple until the end of the sovereignty of the Medes, 30 years. Eight kings ruled from the Medes, 159 years for them. From the end of the sovereignty of the Medes until the release from the Babylonian captivity and the renewing of the temple, 40 years. From the renewing of the temple until the end of the sovereignty of the Persians, 300 years. That is, 12 kings ruled from the Persians, 231 years was their sovereignty. Thus we can see the centrality of the kingship of Babylon, uh, embodied first by the Assyrians and then by the Medes and the Persians, to the text's conception of history. Other events circulate around this central point. The Olympic Games, even the building and burning and renewing of the temple, is subordinated to the rise and fall of the Assyrian and Persian empires. So let us look first then at the case of a historical king whose rule is attested in a range of historical sources and who is portrayed in mythic terms in the Bible and who was clearly of some interest to the redactor of the Ballymote version of the Irish Sex Aetatis Mundi, that is Cyrus II, also known as Cyrus the Great or Cyrus the Elder, founder of the Achaemenid Empire in the 6th century before the Common Era. According to the Hebrew Bible, it was Cyrus who released the Jews from their Babylonian exile. He's also the only non-Jew in the Bible to be described as a messiah. Cyrus's attack on Babylon is treated quite differently in the Ballymote version of the Irish Sexetatis Mundi than in any other version of the text. The wording of the whole account is very different in the Ballymote version than in the Rawlinson B502 version, and the Ballymote version contains additional information not found in any other version of the text. So first I'll just read the relevant section of the account as it's printed in O'Cronin's edition, uh, which as I've said is based primarily on Rawlinson B502. It says, the wall of Babylon was constructed thus, that is, the wall was compact with baked lime and bitumen in the form of a square with symmetrical walls. Its wall was 50 cubits thick, 200 cubits high, and 480 stadia in its circumference. And there were 100 bronze doors set into it. It says in the books of antiquities that such was the thickness of its wall that 20 four-wheeled chariots could course between the rows of houses on the top of its wall. The river Euphrates passed through it under stone archways. Cyrus therefore came, each man having a spade in his hand, so that they divided the river into little streams without the inhabitants knowing. So Cyrus's host came by way of the river course until they were in the centre of the city, without being heard by the inhabitants of the city, and thus was Babylon destroyed. <clears throat> now, the Ballymote version, as I say, is quite different. Uh, the wording of the whole episode is unlike that in Rawlinson, and there's also an additional section added, and I've given you this uh, on the handout. I'll just read my translation, which is tentative in some places. If anyone has any suggestions, I'd be glad to hear of them. But I said, as Daniel the prophet prophesied, it is thus that the battalion of Cyrus will come. With a spade in the hand of every man, the hosts will then release the great stream into its small streams. And it is thus was the layout of the gateway through which the river used to come, with stones of pearls. It was 
daub, I think, that the lintel was, and it is a magnetic nature that is in that. And every ship and every host of those that came into those entrances, those stones used to attract them so that they used to be sticking to them. So that what the people of that city used to do when they used to come to those gates was to place boards above the ships so that the stones used to attract those boards so that the ships could dart past them into the city. And it is this then, this then, uh, which caused Cyrus's strong-arm tactics on the river Euphrates. An enormous hosting was ordered by Cyrus to seek the sovereignty of India so that they happened upon the river Ganges, that is one of the great rivers of the world, and Cyrus sent a group of his company to find out whether the river was traversable by them. Cyrus's foster brother went ahead in a group of 12 soldiers, and it is thus that they went on their 12 bright horses, and the strength of the river overwhelmed them and they were all drowned. His company drowning in his presence and the fact that he could not help them put the mind of the king into dejection. They were fasting for a period of three days and three nights on the bank of the river, and the king did not speak to any one of his hosts for that period of time, but he was examining and searching thereat what he would do to the river that had drowned his company. The nobles of the Persians and the Medes were brought to him, and it is this which he said. I vow, he said, that I will not go from this river until weak women and children may go across it on foot. Now, there are many elements of this passage which are, are noteworthy. First of all, the, the quatrain of Middle Irish verse in Devitha, which is put into the, the voice of the prophet Daniel, serves to embed the narrative further within biblical narrative and, and chronology. This prophetic verse about Cyrus seems, I think, to be extracted from a longer poem, which, as far as I know, unfortunately does not survive. Uh, but we have evidence of other verse accounts also no longer extant, uh, unfortunately, of the reign of Cyrus um, from medieval Ireland. For example, a single stanza about Cyrus embedded in a Middle Irish metrical tract also seems to have been extracted from a longer te text about that king. And this latter stanza is written in a very unusual metre and is therefore certainly from a different poem than the Daniel prophecy. So we can suppose maybe that there was quite a large amount of poetic material about Cyrus that doesn't, doesn't survive anymore. Also of interest is the information about the mag magnetic gateways into the city uh, of Babylon. I've not been able to trace a source for this, unfortunately, but it seems plausible that the source might be some sort of Wonders of the East-type text. Certainly the wondrous substance from which the lintel is apparently constructed, combined with the juxtaposition of a narrative alleged by the author to have occurred in India, seems to me to support the important observations made by Michael Clarke in a 2012 article on uh, the law of monstrous racists pub published in uh, CMCS. Now, uh, I don't have time to really summarise his very, very dense and uh, uh, rich, rich article, but essentially what he showed was that some other episodes that are found in the Ballymote version of the Sexetates Mundi uh, and are not in other versions, are also derived from wonders of the East type stuff and, and, and contain sort of esoteric lore of the type that we find perhaps in this, this Cyrus episode. As for the episode taking place on the banks of the Ganges, uh, we might note here, first of all, in the, as the previous speaker noted, the interest elsewhere in the Book of Ballymote in, in India. But we might note uh, that this is actually, in this case, an error on the part of the author of, or his source. In the earliest sources for this story, which are Herodotus and then Seneca, the episode is said to have occurred at a river called the Jindes. But our Irish author, by stating that the river is in India and is one of the major rivers of the world, has clearly mistaken it for the Ganges. In the original episode, in Herodotus and Seneca, it is actually Cyrus's special white horse that drowns. 
Um, and we seem still to have an allusion to that in the Irish text, in the reference to the, to the bright horses. But I don't know the source of the introduction of the idea that it was Cyrus's foster brother who drowned, rather than just the horse. Um, it is, though, perhaps interesting to note that the only other source that I was able to find which mentions anything like this is actually the 16th century English chronicle known as Hollinshead's Chronicle, um, in which it is said that it was Cyrus's favourite knight who drowned. Uh, this is the most similar parallel that I've been able to find, and it's perhaps significant that one of the scholars who worked on the compilation of that chronicle, Richard Stanihurst, uh, was an Irish literary scholar and translator, so there may be some Irish connection to the, the occurrence of this particular motif in the English chronicle uh, of the 16th century. There are other uh, interesting elements of this, of this episode. The mind of the king being put into a state of de dejection for three days and three nights is, is a, almost verbatim echo of Scala Mucca Macdasso, for example. Um, uh, but time forbids me from, from, from saying much more. Cyrus's reign, though, marked the beginning of the empire of the Persians and the Medes and brought about the end of the Assyrian Empire. Thus, it marks a significant turning point from one powerful overkingship to another. The beginning of Assyrian rule was marked by the reign of another significant king who, though credited with rebuilding Babylon in medieval historiography, is not, in fact, unlike Cyrus, he's not, in fact, um, historically attested. Um, and this is Ninus, son of Belus. So I begin by reading, again, this is my text and translation excerpted from, the again, catchily titled Synchronisms B, uh, as edited by McCarthy where it tells us, Ham, son of Noah, he had four sons, that is, Cush and Mizraim and Phut and Canaan, and from those that descended the Africans. Shem, son of Noah, he had five sons, that is, Elam and Asher and Arphaxad, Lud and Aram. Elam, from him, are the Elamites, that is, the Persians, that is, the kingdom. Asher, it is from him, are the Assyrians, that is, the first sovereignty of the world. Arphaxad, it is from him, are the Chaldeans and the Hebrews, that is, Eber, son of Salah, son of Arphaxad. Yoktan, son of Eber, he had 13 sons, and from them are descended the, and then there's a corrupt form here, I think that there's something missing, and then it says, in India. And then Shem, Shem, Asher was a son of his, Belus was a son of his, Ninus was a son of the latter. The last, Ninus, son of Belus, was the first king of the world. In the eleventh year after the birth of Ninus, son of Belus, was the death of Ham and Japheth. In the year after them, Ninus, son of Belus, assumed kingship. That is, in the twenty-first year of the kingship of Ninus, the birth of Abraham. 948 years from Adam to the birth of Abraham. Semiramis, wife of Ninus, 42 years. By her, the wall of Babylon was made, and she took her own son to her as a husband, that is, Ninius, and she died after that. So here, then, we begin to encounter characters of great interest, not only to the author of the text, beginning Adam Primus Pater Fuit, Synchronism B, but also to the authors of other texts in the Book of Ballymote. That is, the, these characters are the mythical Assyrian king, Ninus, son of Belus, his son, Ninius, and wife to both of them, as well as mother of Ninius, Semiramis. Now, the primary significance, primary interest of Ninus, son of Belus, for these Irish authors is that he is regarded as the first king of the world, that is, the first king of the first world kingship, that of the Assyrians. However, he is also considered, for example, in the Irish Sextatatis Mundi, as having rebuilt the city of Babylon. 
Or, in Synchronisms B, as we've just seen, his wife, Semiramis, is credited with building the wall of Babylon. In this way, Ninus, Semiramis, and Nennius are integrated into biblical history and chronology through their significant roles in the history of the city of Babylon. But unlike Cyrus, uh, Ninus, Semiramis, and, and Nennius are not, in fact, biblical figures. But we might compare and contrast the treatment of Ninus with the treatment of Cyrus, who, as we have seen, was also integral to the history of Babylon at the time of the Jewish captivity. We've already seen in Synchronisms B how Ninus's reign is aligned with the birth of Abraham. In the 11th year after the birth of Ninus, son of Belus, was the death of Ham and Japheth. In the year after them, Ninus, son of Belus, assuming kingship. That is, in the 21st year of the kingship of Ninus, the birth of Abraham. 948 years from Adam to the birth of Abraham. This continual juxtaposing of the life of Abraham, the first Jewish patriarch, with that of Ninus, the first Assyrian world king, is also seen in a poem on Ninus, son of Belus, which is found on folio 7, recto, column B of the Book of Ballymoat. I've just given you a few stanzas there um, as the last item on the handout from my edition and translation, and I'll hopefully have a, a full edition and translation of the poem as an appendix to the published version of this paper. But just to give you a flavour of it, um, 21 years of famous valour for Ninus at the birth of Abraham. We remember it without deceptive fame, the books fully verifying it. 60 splendid years of the aid of noble Abraham at the coming of Parthalon, of the bright landing place, the strength of his deadly great host was famous. Ninius, son of Ninus, a champion with strength in his ever-exact sixth year, the son of Sarah got through the prowess of spearpoint and warfare to old Ireland. From the death of Abraham, who received honour until the descendants of Parthalon were buried, it is no mean fame, it is no false fame, 7, 80 and 100. So the connecting here of the Assyrian kings, Ninus and Ninius, the Jewish patriarch, Abraham, and the invader of Ireland, Parthalon, son of Sarah, reflects in microcosm the macrocosmic process of synchronism that we see in other texts in the Book of Ballymote, perhaps most notably Levagovala Aaron, but also Levagbrethnach, in which the histories, geographies, and ancestries of the people of these islands are given legitimacy because they are integrated with and juxtaposed with important figures from world and biblical history. On the basis of the text derived from biblical material, which I've transcribed and translated so far from the Book of Ballymote, I would make these tentative conclusions as to their purpose and function. Um, I've already noted the lack of eschatological and exegetical uh, influence in the text and the historiographical um, focus uh, of the, the biblical material. And the material lends legitimacy, weight, and a chronological framework for the more prominent concerns of the manuscript, namely Irish origins, history, genealogy, political relationships, language, and geography. But on the other hand, I would also suggest that the message of the material uh, in the way that it's framed, emphasized, and articulated in the Book of Ballymote is that empires collapse, dynasties rise and fall, kingships fail, kings die, and kingdoms are destroyed. The structures of earthly power are transient, Ninus, son of Belus, or his wife Semiramis, might build the walls of Babylon, but eventually Cyrus, the Messiah, would come to undermine them and set God's people free. At the opening of the Ballymote version of Levagovala Aaron, we were reminded, in the beginning, God created heaven and earth. And until the end of the sixth age, though individual rulers will fall away, heaven and earth will remain with its diverse peoples, its many languages, its wondrous places, and ruling it all, the only eternal emperor, God. Thank you.
thank you very much for this wonderful paper.